Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio 101.9 FM, Campus and Community Queen's Radio in Kingston, and we're located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. In this episode, I'll be discussing some of Dr. Joshua Carton's research in international law and work as a legal educator. Let me provide a little biographical background on Professor Carton. Joshua Carton is an Associate Professor and the Associate Dean of Graduate Studies and Research in the Faculty of Law at Queen's. His research focuses on a cluster of legal issues related to cross-border business relationships, in particular how the laws that govern them are evolving in the context of globalization and how disputes that arise from those relationships are resolved. His writing explores what happens when private actors from different backgrounds legal, cultural, and linguistic, meet in the international legal arena. His work is often interdisciplinary, especially involving sociological analysis of law and legal communities. In between receiving his JD from Columbia Law School and his PhD in international law from Cambridge, he practiced in litigation and arbitration in the New York office of Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton, LLP a multinational law firm. Joshua is a native Vancouverite and also has a long-standing interest in Asian politics and culture. He speaks Chinese, has held visiting positions at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, the National Taiwan University, and the Wuhan University in China. Let's, let's begin by uh, um, having you talk a little bit about the interdisciplinary nature of your work and the, the sociological connection. Um, how, how does the sociology relate to the international arbitration aspect? And, uh, and uh, maybe as you're talking, if you could uh, relate that all to a, an example that kind of illustrates. Sure, I'll give it a shot. Thanks for inviting me, Barry. I'm happy to be here. I think the, the one thing that's important to know about law is that it's a social institution. Right? It's not something that exists outside society. It's how we organize society. So as anyone who's actually confronted the legal system could tell you, or anybody with even just a couple of weeks of law school, reading the law on the books is just the first step in working out what the law actually requires of people or of the government. So you need a broader perspective to understand how the legal system actually operates, how it actually affects people's lives. A lot of my research is about international commercial arbitration resolving cross-border business disputes by arbitration instead of in court. So it's a procedural choice to go to a private arbitral tribunal instead of public courts. But what kind of difference does that procedural choice make for the actual substance of the disputes? Who wins, who loses? What kind of damages the loser might have to pay? It's a niche area, but it's increasingly important. It's growing in popularity, and it's especially useful for businesses and and for other types of people involved in disputes in countries where the courts are xenophobic or corrupt or incompetent or or just plain very slow. 
So it's important to come to grips with how arbitration works because it's becoming a kind of a parallel justice system uh, in international commerce. But that's the problem. Uh, international arbitrations are broadly confidential. Not just the final decision, but any evidence disclosed during the hearing, even the existence of the dispute, is kept secret. The only people who ever know about it are the parties, the arbitrators, and anyone who helps administer the arbitration. There's some implications for the public interest in that confidentiality. Uh, but the biggest impact for me is just on me as a researcher. Right? I have no access to the raw materials of arbitrators' decision-making, right? the decisions that they make. You can't read them. Uh, only a tiny percentage of the arbitrators' awards are ever published, and these don't necessarily represent what arbitrators as a whole are doing. In the literature, you often see international arbitration referred to as a black box. A, a dispute goes in, a decision comes out, but nobody really knows what happens in between. So we don't know what arbitrators are actually doing. But if you use an interdisciplinary perspective, and I think sociological methods are especially useful for this, you can find out what arbitrators will tend to do. Maybe you can't predict the decision they'll make in any one case, but you can work out what the trends are in the field as a whole. Right? So sociological research allows me, allows people who do research like mine, to figure out what kinds of people become arbitrators. What institutional structures do they work within? What financial incentives are they subject to? What are the values or what are the priorities that the field tends to share? And by putting those together, you can assemble a picture of arbitral decision-making. Now, it's an impressionistic kind of picture. You can't necessarily see the details, but you can get an overall sense in a way that's just impossible by doing the standard legal research type of method of just reading the decisions because you can't read the decisions. So can you tell us about some of these trends that you're uh, starting to become aware of? Well, one of the biggest things that interests me is the idea of arbitrators as free agents. Right? Unlike judges, they don't have a job, they don't draw a salary, they don't enjoy life tenure. They sell their services on an open market. Um, it's a competitive market and they're in, in competition with each other. It, it's a genteel kind of competition, but it's still a field that's subject to market competitive forces in a way that judging in national courts just isn't, regardless of the country. So I think you can tease apart some of the effects on arbitrators' decision-making of the fact that they're chosen and appointed by the parties, right? so they tend to share business perspectives, the fact that they're in competition with each other, so they focus on areas where that competition is really visible, like how quickly they can decide, how efficiently they can manage the resolution of the dispute. And in particular, something I like to, to talk about in my research is the, the business perspective that becomes embedded in arbitral decision-making that's quite different from national court judges. That what they see often as their, their purpose, their role, is as a part of the business system rather than a part of the legal system. And so what they're looking for is an outcome to the dispute that's commercially reasonable, right? That makes sense from a practical market point of view which isn't necessarily legally correct. You know, they don't have an appellate court looking over their shoulder, you know, tweaking their legal determinations. For the most part, arbitrators' decisions cannot be reviewed uh, by other uh, arbitrators or by courts. 
So really what they're looking for is a way to resolve the dispute that sees the parties be satisfied. I'd like you to come back to this topic of uh, uh, sort of the the pro-business bias. Mm -hmm. uh, I know uh, before we began uh, recording our interview, you were telling me that you have received a grant to do some research into this area. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that research, but also bring it back to perhaps the uh, uh, using some of the findings and recommendations perhaps to rebalance that uh, inequity. Sure. Uh, well, one of the one of the main projects I'm working on right now, we're just gearing up to start. It's a it's a big interdisciplinary project. We have a, a multinational team of researchers, uh, uh, coordinated by Tony Cole, a friend of mine who who teaches at the University of Leicester, and we received a grant from the English Economic and Social Research Council to study arbitration in Europe as a field of practice. We're going to be conducting surveys. We're going to be conducting more than 400 interviews over the next few years across uh, 50 plus different countries. And what we're going to try to do is to build a picture of arbitration as a profession in Europe. What kinds of people be become arbitrators? What are the age dynamics? What are the gender dynamics? What are the racial dynamics in appointment of arbitrators, in how parties make their arguments to arbitral tribunals, and of course, in what decisions do the arbitrators make? We have some arbitration lawyers on the team, but we also have a sociologist and we have a psychologist who specializes in the science of decision making under conditions of uncertainty. Let me ask maybe what is a, a dumb question, but are the arbitrations conducted in English at the, at the international level or are they conducted in a variety of languages? And if, uh, well, how does that impact on the profile of the arbitrator? Language is a big issue. Uh, every international arbitration, by definition, has parties from at least two different countries. Often the arbitrators, there's usually a, a three-member tribunal. They might come from different countries as well. And, and English is the, it's the dominant language. It's the most important language just because it's become kind of the global language of business. But it's certainly not the language of all international arbitrations, far from it. Uh, and in fact, when you're looking for an arbitrator, one of the things that you might consider, it's an important factor, is whether the arbitrator is fluent in the language of the proceedings. So the parties can choose what language they want to use. I remember one Korean uh, lawyer that I interviewed for a, a book I had come out a few years ago on the culture of the international arbitration profession. He's Korean, and most of his clients do business in China. So their counterparts on the other side are Chinese companies or Chinese state-owned entities. And he told me that one of the reasons they prefer arbitration to litigation, it's not so much because they want to keep out of Chinese courts, although that's a factor too. It's because they can have the arbitration in English. And English is all of their second language, whereas most of them don't speak any Chinese at all. I think they also feel that Koreans often speak better English than Chinese, and so they would have a little bit of an advantage in conducting the proceedings in English. I would think that uh, uh, the arbitrator's ability to speak a, uh, a language, whatever that language is, in addition to the, the technical legal skills, would be a factor in, in uh, determining the outcomes or influencing the outcomes. So you can have a, an incredibly talented and skilled uh, arbitrator going in, uh, but if that person doesn't have the language skills, they're going to be at a disadvantage, uh, I would think, in, in, uh, in this process of arbitration. 
Well, what would usually happen if the arbitrator doesn't have sufficient fluency in the language that the documents are in or the language that the witnesses are speaking or the language that the, ar the lawyers are pleading in is you'd have simultaneous translation uh, for the oral hearing and documents translated. That's enormously expensive and slow and inaccurate. And so people like to avoid it. Um, so if you, if you only speak one language, that would certainly constrain your prospects of getting appointed uh, as a potential arbitrator. But there's also an interesting dynamic that develops in the relationship between a legal system and the language that legal system is expressed in. Mm. Right? Often there aren't good words in other languages for legal concepts or legal institutions in one legal system. Can you give us an example? I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Let me think. So, uh, be a good one. All right. So here in, in French law, this is an issue that comes up in contract law. So you might see it in, in commercial arbitrations. In French law, there's the concept of nullité of a contract. You could translate that as nullity, right? Nullness, voidness in English. But voidness in the common law, like in most Canadian law, has different legal consequences from nullité in French law. There's actually two different kinds of nullité, absolu and relatif, absolute and relative. And we don't have that concept in the common law. So if you have a French legal argument that's phrased in terms of, of nullité, of nullity, but it's heard by an English trained lawyer, even if they speak fluent French, you're probably going to get a translation of the legal concept, not just a translation of the word, right, in their decision making. And they might think of voidness or nullity in the way it operates in the common law rather than the way it operates in French law. Hmm. It sounds like the, this research project that uh, you're embarking on will uh, open up a, a lot of, uh, uh, shed a lot of light on what's going on and I think will improve accountability and uh, um, uh, pr probably make better arbitrators as a result of it. Mm, that, that's the hope. Uh, in economic terms, the market for arbitration services uh, suffers from information asymmetries because the people who appoint arbitrators can't just read the work product of those arbitrators because the decisions are confidential. There's a lot of word of mouth. There's a lot of exchange of favors. There's a lot of old boys network. And that's partly a problem for accountability and the, the quality of arbitral decision-making as a whole. It's also a problem for equity within the arbitration profession. And arbitrators continue uh, infamously, the phrase you hear is pale, male, and stale, right? Old mm. white men, especially from Western Europe and North America. Right. So if we want to diversify the profession, bring more women into it, bring more, uh, I say visible minorities, but of course in the world, white people are the minority, mm. uh, although not in the arbitration profession. Uh, to diversify the profession, and which is important from an equity point of view and also important from a quality point of view, getting the best arbitrators for each job, we need to understand how those dynamics are working. Often in a three-member tribunal, each party will appoint one arbitrator, and then those two co-arbitrators will select the chair of the tribunal. If gender, generation, race, religion, if those kinds of factors or philosophical factors like political attunement or whether the person tends to uh, emphasize good faith or tends to emphasize the literal meaning of words and the way they interpret contracts, if those are making a big difference in who gets to be an arbitrator in the first place, that's an important determinant of what comes out of the arbitration black box. As uh, political scientists like to say, personnel is policy. 
Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston, located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca slash research. I close out each episode of Blind Date with Knowledge by asking my guests to tell us a joke, recite a short poem or inspirational quotation, or reference a song related to their research. So Joshua, the microphone's yours. Well, I don't have a song, uh, (laughs) but I do have a line from a song. It's probably actually one of the most famous lines in hip-hop. Uh, it comes from a Kanye West song, Diamonds from Sierra Leone, but it's actually from a verse uh, performed by Jay-Z from a remix of that song. Uh, Jay-Z raps, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman, so let me handle my business, damn. As I've said, a main theme of my research is arbitration as a business. Right? Arbitrators aren't businessmen, they aren't entrepreneurs. What they're doing is selling themselves as a business, right? Their judgment, their wisdom, their efficiency, their management skills. And that affects the way they think. And it's been a a recurring theme in my research to explore what are those effects. So what I've repeatedly seen in my research, as I mentioned before, is the idea that arbitrators are looking for business outcomes rather than legal outcomes. And they want to do that without oversight from the courts, without heavy-handed regulation, right? They want states to just butt out and let them handle their business. I call it the business of justice delivering the justice of business. Very smart. Uh, Thank you, Joshua. My my guest in this episode of uh, Blind Date with Knowledge has been Dr. Joshua Carton. Uh, He's the Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Graduate Studies and Research in the Faculty of Law at Queen's. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have any comments about today's conversation with Joshua, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thanks for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.